Celebrate Grace. Our church started 1939. And with, with about 50 people, as a matter of fact, we have a picture of that first group of people. This is a, a church building. It was actually a Presbyterian church, I think, that we were using. And it's, it's now a residence, a, a private home. It's on the other side of the quarry, out on the prairie, if you know where that is, on the other side of Fremont. And over those years, we actually only have one charter member left one person that was in that picture her name is Doris Wiles she's very faithful to our church she sits right back in that section usually first hour and you know what happened she was at the farmer's market yesterday she tripped and fell and she didn't know it but we were going to mention her today and she didn't make sure she's here all the time and she missed today we actually had flowers for her that they've been taken to her house uh, this morning but anyway so think about Doris and uh, she's she's a great lady if you've not met her uh, she's about this tall and full of dynamite. She's ornery, but she's great. And uh, anyway, so we, uh, and she may be tuned in. So Doris, if you're watching, hey, we're missing you. See you next Sunday. Uh, thanks for being with us. So we're, we're excited about that. And we see how God's blessed us. I, I think since the year 2000, we've tripled in size. I think in the last 10 years, we've grown about 700 people. And now we have three campuses in this venue out at Bloomville, and we're just excited about what God's going to do. In a couple of years, uh, we plan on launching another campus in Tiffin, and this will be the only time we've actually launched a campus where we intentionally wanted to plan it out and launch a campus. So we'll see if we can do it that way, and we're, we're pumped about that. We're in a series, we're going to wrap it up today, called Road Trip, and we've been talking about the greatest road trip in history. And it all started with a guy named Abraham, little backstory. God calls this guy Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees and says, hey, I want you to go to a land that you, you've never been to, and that's Canaan or modern-day Israel, and, and Abraham believes God, so he gets up and he goes. And he gets there, and God then tells him, I'm going to make a, an entire nation out of you, and I'm going to use this nation to bless the world. And actually, it's going to be the line that the Messiah is going to come from, but Abraham didn't know all that. But so he goes, and then he has one son, Isaac, and Isaac has a son, Jacob, and, and that's the line that, that God's going to bless. And Jacob has 12 sons, and then one of those sons is Joseph. He kind of irritates his brothers. They sell him into slavery. He ends up down in Egypt, spends some time in prison, and then he gets out, and, and God kind of works it out where he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt, which is the most powerful country in the world at that time. And so when he does that, there's a famine in that region. And so he invites his family that still live in Palestine, Canaan, to come to Egypt. And they do. There's 75 of them at that time. And they come in. And, and so we know what happens eventually. And God had told Abraham that his, his line would be these people that God was going to make a nation from him with, that they would be enslaved for 400 years. Well, Joseph dies. The Pharaoh dies. Uh, pretty soon nobody remembers these guys, but the, the, the Israelite people are multiplying. The new pharaohs threatened by that. They're enslaved. 400 years goes by. God calls Moses. Moses comes in. We've seen the movie. Leads the people out. They cross the Red Sea. I opened it up, and then you know Tim talked about that, and Michael and Luke talked about that last couple weeks, and that brings us to now. They're, they've left Israel. They went in, 75 people, 400 years later, about 2 million people are leaving. They go to this place, Mount Sinai. This is where 
Moses talks to God. This is where Moses receives the law of God, the great moral law, the Ten Commandments, and then a bunch of societal laws. So he's up on this mountain. All the people are hanging out, and it's a little freaky because the mountain, there's thunder and lightning and all kinds of stuff going on, and, and they're afraid. Moses goes up there, but when he's up there, he's up there for 40 days. He actually goes up a few times, but this time he's up there 40 days, and everybody knows that he's meeting with God. They get it, and they're waiting, but they start running out of patience. While Moses is up there, he gets the Ten Commandments, and you remember what they are, right? Hey, no other gods before me, he's saying. No other gods, no idols, no images to worship God. He's saying, never take my name in vain. You know, he's, he's laying it all out there. He says, keep one day in seven, one day every week, holy where you focus on me. For us, that's, that's Sunday. That's what we're doing right here. And then honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. And when these do nots, these are do nots, don't ever do any of these. And this is the great moral law, God's righteous standard. And the problem is we look at those laws and we realize we've all broken this law. We've all broken some point. The Bible actually says you've broken one part, you've broken it all. We've broken these laws. In the meantime, while all this is happening, the people are, are getting frustrated. They're waiting for Moses. It's been 40 days, what's the holdup? What's going on? They start taking matters in their own hands. And as we look at this story, here's the takeaway. Here's what I want us to get, and that's this. God has revealed himself, but we cannot take God and shape him into a distorted image. Because if we do, what we'll end up doing is we'll end up rejecting God. And when we see that happening even today. So I'd like to pick up the story. It's in Exodus chapter 32. We're going to begin with verse 1. And here's, here's the way it's written. It says, now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Remember, on the way out, they plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians are wanting them to leave, and, they're, and they were told to ask, and they were giving them all their jewelry and everything else. All right. Bring them to me. Verse 3. Then all the people tore off their gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron... And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. This rose up to play 
is, kind of, is, is a Hebrew phrase to mean they rose up to engage in sexual immorality, like an open orgy, the way that the cultures around them would worship fertility gods. So think about this. Moses is up getting the moral law from God himself, and before he even gets back, the people as a group have broken the first three commandments. Boom, already in their sin. And here's what I want us to see. God cannot be shaped into a simplistic image. And just like they did that with Aaron, we tend to do the same thing today. And I want us to be able to see that. So here's the thing. When God, when Aaron makes this calf, he's sinning against God, breaks the three commandments. But here's what, I, here's what people debate. Are they worshiping a different God or are they worshiping the one true God in a perverted way? And the answer is really kind of both because they're worshiping the one true God in a perverted way, which really makes it worshiping a God that doesn't exist. But notice the wording in verse 5. It says, now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, the, the, that's the golden calf, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And the Lord there is, is the all caps Lord. The Lord there really is the personal name of God. He's saying we'll have a feast to Yahweh, the personal name of God. And they're also talking about this is the God that brought us from Egypt. So they, they're worshiping the right God in a perverted, distorted way. And when they do that, they've really distorted God into a simplistic version of who God really is. And when they do that, that and when we do that today, it causes people to reject God, but they don't realize they're actually rejecting a distorted image of God. We can't twist him into some distortion because that always limits who he is. So, distorted images of God are usually rejected by people, and that happens even today. People, without realizing it, distort their image of God in a more simplistic way, and it'll cause them to reject God. And a lot of times, it's this. People grow up, and maybe they've been exposed to a religious environment, or maybe Sunday school, and they learn kind of some simple truths about the real God, but then they never grow in their faith, and they never grow in their understanding about God, and then they, they're adults, and they start running into adult problems, and as adults, they make observations, and they realize the God they learned about in Sunday school from, from a child's view is not adequate to answer life's tougher questions. And then people say, I, I can't believe in God because he kinda, he, he's not who I think he is. Let me say it another way. Your five-year-old comes up and asks you, where do babies come from? And, and you're like deer in the headlights, right? You're like, whoa. And then what do you say? Mommy's tummy. Your 15-year-old comes and asks, where do babies come from? You give a different answer, right? Right? Are you, okay, all right, yeah. You do. Yeah. So your 15-year-old comes, 
if you're a pre-med student and you're asking a doctor, you're probably going to get a more complicated answer, right? It's not that anybody's misleading anybody. It's that you're trying to give an answer that the, the person asking the question can comprehend, that they can understand. Well, that same thing happens in church. It's not misleading. But what happens is a lot of times people learn about God as a child, and then they grow up and they experience some faith-crushing event in their life, and they say, wow, this does not compute with my childlike understanding of God. They just don't realize it's a childlike understanding of God. And then all of a sudden they have a faith crisis, and they walk away from God. And what's happening there is they're rejecting God, but they don't realize that they're actually rejecting a simplistic, distorted view of God. They don't even know the real God. And I want to give you some examples of how that happens today. Are you with me? Okay, first one. The first one I want to talk about is bodyguard God. Bodyguard God. God's going to take care of me. And, and there's some truth in that, but, and we get that. We take care of the people we love. And for example, there are service members today, 24-7, around the world, who are risking their lives, laying their life on the line to protect us and our freedoms here right now this morning. I've had some strange jobs, and at one time in my life, I had a job that involved something called dignitary protection, and occasionally in that role, I would serve as a bodyguard. And, and a few times in my career in doing that, I worked with the Secret Service because the president was speaking where we are. For example, the first time this happened is I was at an event in Washington, D.C. It was our event, our guy, the guy I was... Uh, on a team with to protect, was speaking, but the president was speaking at the same event. And so we were working with the Secret Service. And here's the weird thing about that. Working with, it's our event, and so we're kind of gauging who can come and go, but the Secret Service, of course, they're not trusting us with the protection of the president. That makes sense, right? So they're doing their own thing. But as we were screening people, the Secret Service, people were entering in because it was a, a political thing. People were entering that were protesting, and so they were entering this event with bottles of urine, human feces, stuff like that to be thrown. And the Secret Service was like, you're okay. And we're like, whoa, 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 what? And they're saying, well, that's not a threat to the life of the president. Well, we had different standards, right? We're like, well, you might be okay with that, but we're not letting these people in. So you had that stuff going on. Kind of weird. You, you just wouldn't think. And that's, and we think, well, man, if somebody's here to protect us, they got our back. Well, that's, that's the way we naturally think about God. If, if God's for me, if I'm with God, if I'm God's, then he's going to take care of me. He's going to protect me so that nothing bad can happen. If he's on my side, he's going to protect us from all pain. So you come away from that, maybe from Sunday school, but then you grow up and then you realize you experience pain. And then not only that, but you see bad things happening to good people or bad things happening to God's people. And then with that immature understanding of God, you think, well, then there can't be a God. But here's my question. Where does God say that his people don't go through pain? That is completely not in the Bible. As a matter of fact, Christianity founded on what? The best person who ever lived 
experiencing the most horrible kind of pain possible in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And by the way, it didn't get all that better after that, right? Because after, even after Christ's resurrection, the followers, the first Christians, what were happening? They were hunted down. They were uh, beaten, threatened, and killed for their faith. So where do we get the idea that if we put our faith in God, God's going to keep all painful experiences from happening to us? That is not in the Bible. It's not there. So experiencing pain and then walking away from God makes no sense because God never promised. That's the wrong, distorted, limited view of God. But here's what God does tell us. God tells us that he loves us and he wants what's best for us. God tells us as a believer that he will never leave us, never forsake us. He will never abandon us no matter what we go through in this life. And God also tells us that if we rely on him, he will equip us, enable us, he will build us up to endure and withstand anything, any pain, any problem, any injustice that is dished out to us. And then it gets even better than that. God tells us that if we're not only his people, but we're called according to his purpose, if we're following him, trying to do his agenda, then he tells us any pain that we suffer, he will flip that and use it for good in our life. Even though we might not be able to see exactly how that's working out. That's his promise to us. Never did God promise that we wouldn't go through hard things. Romans 8, 28. Many of us know this. You know, it's, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Hey, be on God's agenda. And any negative thing you experience, God will turn that into a good in our life. Who, so who told you that God would never allow you to go through hard stuff? As a matter of fact, God does allow tough things, bad things to happen to us. And he went through the worst thing in order to save us from the right and just penalty for our rebellion against him. That's what scripture says. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's his promise. That's what he's saying. He'll never leave us. I mean, the whole New Testament. Paul, who wrote a big chunk of the New Testament, wrote it from where? Prison. And God saw him through. So if you lost faith in bodyguard God, good. Because he doesn't exist. It's a distorted, simplistic image of who God really is. So that's one. Another one, on-demand God. On-demand God. A God who must answer fair and good requests that we make to him. You know, this is where we're thinking this way. 
God should at least do what I would do for somebody. So if I want to help somebody, if I cared about somebody, well, God would at least do that. And so we think, well, anytime I make a request for God that's not selfish, especially if it's not selfish, or it's a good thing that I'm asking for, or it's a good thing for somebody else that I'm asking for, well, then God should always give it. But then here's how people think. But hold it, that didn't happen. I, one time, I asked God for this thing, or this sign, or this answer, and I got nothing. And so I just can't believe in a God like that. Okay, okay. but who told you? Where did you get the teaching that God would always answer your requests in a way that you'd expect? It's not the Bible that's telling us that. Because God's so transcendently beyond us that he answers in ways that we don't expect. And by the way, a lot of us are glad that God doesn't exist. Because some of us can remember back when we were teenagers and some of the requests that we were making to God about that relationship and that thing and this and that and the other thing. I mean, even Garth Brooks gets the blessing of unanswered prayer, right? <laughs> Who told you that? So on demand God. And then there's goosebump God. Goosebump God is this. That if I follow God, then I should always feel his presence. And we understand that. You know, hopefully all of us has kind of felt, we've all kind of felt God's presence. The problem is we don't always feel God's presence. Why? Because our feelings change. Our feelings are unpredictable, unreliable. Our feelings change like the wind. God is not dependent on our feelings. And so when people start working through this, and they're going, well, man, I, I just don't feel that God. Well, God's promised to be with you. Well, I, I'm just not feeling it. It's like the temperature in this room. There would probably be a hundred different opinions about what the temperature of this room. Like right now, we have some people in this room, and you're kind of chilly, and you're thinking, why do they have this air cranked up so high? This is uncomfortable, and you're wearing a sweater. And then there are other, you're sitting probably within 10 people of you is some guy sitting there in a t-shirt going, why is it so hot in this room? As a matter of fact, our charter member, Doris, has some, a lot of opinions on this topic. I'll, I'll just let you know. And, and so we hear all these things. And we're trying to get it right for everybody. And then there's a bunch of people you've never, you haven't even thought about the temperature because it's, it's right for you. Here, here's the thing. Some of the most constant things in our lives are things that we don't think about. Right now, we are, Earth is hurtling through the, the, the atmosphere at 67,000 miles an hour. Anybody feeling that? No. We're spinning, at, so in relationship to the sun, 67,000 miles Per hour, because speed is always in relation to what? And then the earth, the surface of the earth that we're sitting on right now is about a thousand miles an hour spinning around the core in relation to the core of the earth. Are we feeling that? No. Some of the most constant things in our life are things that it does not lend itself to us to feel. 
a lot of times. The most constant things are sometimes what we're least aware of. God is always present in the life of a believer. So who told you that you should always feel his presence? And not feeling his presence means that he's gone somewhere because he hasn't. There's the anti-science God. Don't get me started. I mean, this is the whole, you cannot believe in God. And science. This is where our young people go off to college. And then they feel like they're presented with two choices. It's either the undeniable facts of science or the unreliable teaching of the Bible. And, so, and then it's like, well, i got to go with the undeniable. This is a false choice. There's nothing in science that, that teaches against what we know about the Bible. The problem is, is if a scientist is ruling out any other explanation rather than a naturalistic explanation, even when a non-naturalistic explanation might better serve to answer the phenomenon that we're seeing, well, that's where you have that. That's a bias before you look at the information. And, and that's a struggle that people have all the time. It was actually Christian thought that launched the scientific movement. People like Newton and Galileo and Sir Francis Bacon, who, by the way, is called the father of the scientific method. Why? Because it was Christians who believed that God created the universe in an orderly, systematic way, and then he stopped creating on the seventh day and rested. And so now it's done, and now we can expect to find an orderly universe that we can discover more and more things about. And as our knowledge increases, we learn more and more. That's, it's Christianity that led to the whole issue of the scientific movement. Who plans to watch the eclipse tomorrow? Put them up there. Who's going to watch the eclipse? Okay, and who you're not watching because you're afraid you're going to go blind. All right, so we... We have a few of those. Okay, if you're, if you're watching, how many of you have the specialized glasses? Which I highly recommend, by the way. So you, you got the glasses. Okay, see the problem here? A bunch of people said they're watching the eclipse. How many people have the glasses? What, three? <laughs> this is not good. But anyway, you know, how do we even know there's going to be an eclipse? How many of you are afraid, even though you have the glasses, you, they may not work and you still might go blind? Anybody? Yeah, because they don't all work. I'm, but anyway, the point is, we can predict that the eclipse is going to happen. Why? Because our universe is so orderly that fits into such a tight system, we know what's going to happen before it even happens. This is not an, an argument against God. This is an argument for God. That's what I'm saying. That's what you need to see. Our world can't be the result of an explosion. Order never comes from chaos. You cannot observe that in science. Nobody has ever observed that. 
So how's that the scientific answer? Because they rule out anything beyond a naturalistic explanation. So that's all they have. And because it's so unbelievable, salt in millions and billions of years to try to make it more believable. But it's not any more believable. If I wanted to build a house, would I call Lowe's and say, bring me, bring me some boards, bring me some wood, bring me some OCB, bring me some carpet, bring me some shingles and some nails and some drywall and some concrete bags and then set them out in the yard and, and get a couple of sticks of dynamite and set it off and hope it turns into a house? W w would we do that? No. Okay, because we know that's going to happen. Okay, but if we do it a hundred times, it might happen? Not going to happen, right? Well, what if we did it a million times? A billion times? And then you got some people going, well, then, yeah, it could happen. <laughs> no, it still can't happen. It's still not going to work that way. It's nuts. Hey, what am I saying? God or science is a false alternative. That's what I'm saying. We don't believe in the anti-science God. We believe in the God who's created stuff where we can learn more and more and more about him. And then that kind of is like the unexplainable phenomenon God. The unexplainable phenomenon, which is probably more in the past, but it still happens today, and that's this. If there's anything that we don't understand how it works, then we attribute that to God. So back in, in ancient times, there's an earthquake. We don't understand how that's happened. Oh, God or the gods must be stomping their feet. There's a lightning bolt. Oh, God must be throwing down power from the sky. The problem with that is the unexplainable is getting less and less. There are fewer and fewer things that are unexplainable. And, and that's a good thing. Because of the fewer and fewer things that we observe in our world that are unexplainable, it means that we know more about our world. And then we find out more discoveries that are useful to us for diseases and everything else. And so we want that to increase. That's all good. It's not a negative thing. And by the way, the more we understand about things, that's not an argument against God. That's actually an argument for God. I'll give you an example. Most of us have cell phones, right? So we have a cell phone. And what if I went to school to be an electronic engineer or whatever, and I went to school... 30. And I went to school and, and I studied and studied and studied. And then I came back and I said, I know everything about this cell phone. I know all the electronic circuits that are in here. I understand how, how the waves go out. You know, I get the whole thing. I, I, I got it all. I've got it all down, not just electronic circuits. I know the recipe for Gorilla Glass. I mean, I've got it all down. Well, the more you knew all about that, the less you would think that you ever ended up with one of these by accident with no intelligent designer. No, the more we know about the complexities of the world around us, the more that it's obvious to us there has to be a designer, right? Yeah. The, the explainable is a bigger evidence, a more effective evidence for God than the unexplainable. So the more we explain, the more powerful our argument for God is. That's what I'm saying. The real God is not dependent on being a plug-in for whatever we can't explain. 
what we don't know about our world has more to do with our ignorance than with God. And then there's the coexist God. And this isn't even just for religious people. This is for secularists as well. You know the coexist God? You've seen the bumper sticker, right? This is either religionists or non-religionists. These are the people who say, hey, just be sincere and have faith. The religionists would say, be sincere and have faith and everything's fine. Just do what you want to do. And as long as you believe and, and try hard, everything is good. Just, just accept God, just accepts everybody is kind of the thinking. Or, you know, this is the right thing if you don't believe in God. And, there, and there's some major problems with this. Number one, the coexist God never confronts people with their personal sin. You see, the coexist people secular or religious, would say this. Just follow your heart. Whatever your heart tells you to do, that's the right thing. By the way, God tells us, watch out for your heart because you got some bad stuff in there. And, and God's going to call that out. You see, if it's just follow your heart and everything's good, you're never confronted with your sin. And if your heart tells you to do it, it's always right. Okay, well, here's the problem with that. What if one person's heart tells them this is right, and another person's heart tells this person the opposite is right? That happens all the time. Who's right? How do we know? We go with the majority and slaughter six million Jews? Is that what we're going with? How are we figuring this out? That's the problem. Our hearts are deceitful. We have to measure them against something outside of us and a standard like God's standard. And there's another problem with that. Is that the coexist God, he just doesn't exist. All religions and secular beliefs Secular belief systems or religions, no matter what you're talking about, these are all belief systems, whether they're religious or not. And they're all mutually exclusive. Meaning, if one of these religions are right or the secular, one of these secular belief systems are right, if one of these are right, then all the other ones are wrong. They don't coexist. They're mutually exclusive. Only one can be right. And here's what God's telling us. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. The coexist God is a figment of people's imagination. He does not exist. And then the last one. This is the no demands on my life God. This is where Christians kind of grow up believing that they're, that they're a believer, but that God makes no demands on their life. And the thought is this. God has created me, but he's created me for me to do my own thing and live my life in any way that I want to live it. And he has no demands on my time or my life or anything else. He's created me to live for me. That God doesn't exist. 
the one true God has told us that all of us are created with a purpose. And the purpose for all of us is beyond ourselves. It's not just living for ourselves. It's to impact other people. The no demand on my life, God, is not real. And so you can walk away from him too, or, or more likely drift away, but you end up rejecting a God that never existed in the first place. And this is where we say that God doesn't really care if I care if people go to hell. Or God wants me to care, but God doesn't really expect me to do anything about it. No, God's put all of us here to impact the people around us. That's why we do series like we're doing next week. To impact irreligious people and non-church people with the, with the truth of God. Just to present it to them in a nice, non-confrontive way. Hopefully a way that helped them understand. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter 3.15 says this. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone or everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence or gentleness and respect. What's Peter saying? He's saying God wants all of us to be equipped and be ready to answer the question when people ask about the hope that's in us, ask about our Christian faith, that we have an answer for them, and we answer them with gentleness and respect. We answer in a nice way, but we have an answer. And that's what we're doing with this series. So we send out these mailers into our community, and most people glance at them and what? Pitch them in the trash. But we're trying to get a few who are asking questions and a few who are invited by, by somebody that they know, hopefully a lot, and they start thinking, well, maybe I'll check this out. And then we know that God uses that and God uses people to impact people's hearts. Now, we know that only God can change someone's heart. Only God could have changed my heart and yours. But we also know that God uses people in his process of doing that. That we exist and we, if we're Christians, are here to impact other people and point them to God. And that's exactly uh, what we want to be. Now, there's one more thing I want to say before I close. And that is that gathering here at church is important. We're told to honor God one day in seven, and, and church is part of that. And not only that, we need you so that we can come together collectively and make a greater impact on our community and the world around us. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews, it tells us this, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, drawing near. And I think some of us here, some of you, need to recommit to being here at Grace more consistently. Because it's been summer and I get that and, and we're off, but that's why we do this, celebrate Grace. So bring everybody back and get everybody back into the 
church habit because that's God's will for you and me and we're better together and God uses us as a church family to more effectively impact the world around us as individuals. I mean, so it all kind of fits together. Does that make sense? All right, here's the deal. I'm going to close in prayer in a minute and then we're going to eat some chicken. But here's what we do. We're not going to start serving chicken until our third service begins, which creates this time lapse. You know, it's about almost 30 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And, and here's what I'm encouraging you to do. Don't line up. You know, we work really hard. I hate lines. I, I'm just my pet peeve. I don't like standing in line because I feel like I'm wasting a bunch of time. So we've actually done all this stuff where we feed like 1,500 people in like eight minutes. That, that, that's all, you know, if you got in line, you will not spend more than eight minutes in line. It's kind of our deal. So you don't have to line up. But, so here's what we found out. But what people will do is they'll line up for 30 minutes because we're not serving yet. And then when people come in for third service, they see a line. They think they're supposed to get in it. They haven't even been to church yet. <laughs> so help us out <laughs> by not lining up. All right? You can go grab some T-shirts over here. And the lines are equal, by the way. Everybody goes over here, but the same size of line on this side. So at 11.35, in about 25 minutes... Head down these hallways, either way, you'll be fed quickly, find a place, have a great time eating. Don't line up early, all right? That's the plan. Let's stand and let's pray. Are you excited about being here today? Yes. Well, we're glad you are here, so let's pray together. We'll pray for the food while we're at it. God, we thank you for your goodness, and thank you for grace, and thank you for every person standing in here, whether they're a believer or somebody that's just kind of discovering what it means to believe in you. And Father, we pray that... Uh, that they had come back as well. And Father, we thank you uh, for our church family. And as Zach was saying earlier, uh, the early church ate together a lot. That's what we're doing right here, and, and that's great. Father, we pray that you bless the food, or that we nourish our bodies, that we better be able to serve you. God, thanks for loving us. And thanks for showing that love with action through your son, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have a great day.